29% Equal is a podcast celebrating significant women who have shaped how we practice architecture today. Produced by me, Sarah Ackland. I'm a practicing architect and PhD researcher studying gendered bodies in public space. So why 29% Equal? Well, the last formal survey undertaken by the ARB, or the Architects Registration Board, was in 2019. This revealed that only 29% of qualified architects are female identifying. Women are routinely excluded from the architecture profession, from the books we read and even the references and precedents that we study at university. In an effort to eliminate this erasure of women, I have asked a young architect, designer, artist or activist from Park W and some of their friends to have a discussion with a woman they feel deserves recognition, or perhaps more recognition. We ask these amazing women about their defining moments, their activism, who inspires them, the advice that they would give to their younger selves, and finally, what a more equitable city might look like. Hi, and welcome back to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. In today's episode, the thoughtful Fee McDonald, a core member of Part W, designer and co-founder of Matt and Fiona, which is a social enterprise working to empower young people, speaks with the incredible Joss Boyce. Joss was a founding member of Matrix, the feminist design collective, operating throughout the 1970s. The all-female identifying group collaborated closely with communities and women. They are well known for designing the Jaganari Centre in Whitechapel. Joss also co-authored the book Making Space with Matrix, which was recently republished and somehow painfully very relevant today. Joss now leads Disordinary Architecture alongside artist Zoe Partington. And in this episode, Fee and Joss join together for a sensitive discussion about not wanting to be an architect, class, unconscious bias, and looking at who does not conform in our society. We talk about gender budgeting and Joss' cause for consciousness raising for meaningful change to occur. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Here's Fee and Joss. Hope you enjoy it. Let's start with you. I mean, you have and continue to have an incredible career and, and something, and you're someone that I very much look up to. So it really is a privilege to speak to you today and thank you for your time. But I suppose to start with, would you feel happy sharing a defining moment in your career or in your life more broadly as a woman? I know that maybe that, that term is something that, that is challenging in itself, but yeah, it'd be really fascinating to hear about something that's been really defining in terms of, of your how your career has unfolded and continues to unfold. Yes, thank you. And I do, I mean, when I first thought about this question, I think that I couldn't really immediately pinpoint a defining moment. I think for some people that's really clear, like there's a moment at which there's a real shift in one's relationships and understanding to the world. But I think for me, partly being one of that whole group of a kind of white middle-class women, young women who went into university post-war, we kind of, there were a lot of us that were part of the kind of growth of university education. And I don't, I'm sure there were plenty of people who thought about that in relationship to a career, but I don't think that it was kind of quite the way that things were discussed or not in the world in which I mixed. I didn't have any sense of what sort of job I wanted or what I wanted to do in the future. And I also didn't, you know, that notion of as a woman, I think for me, although I was definitely middle class, I came from quite a peculiar class background with a very aristocratic mother and a working class dad. And and we were really quite poor initially and my mum cleaned other people's houses so although I've got quite a a kind of you know BBC accent class was actually quite complex I mean when you grow up you grow up with what you know so you know it was fine but it, it was much more complex for me the class the sense of how middle class architecture was it wasn't just that there were a lot of young white men but it was also there was something about a kind of entitlement which I didn't I wouldn't have been able to call it that, but I felt very much that I didn't fit. I didn't quite know what was going on, and maybe lots of people felt that. And I also realised quite soon that I didn't want to be an architect. I couldn't quite see why people wanted to be one. I really loved the whole subject. I really love architecture as a subject, but the way 
that certain things were kind of inculcated about what was important as an architect and what it was that you should produce. I could never, I could never quite connect with it. It never seemed to quite relate to my own life experiences or to the sense that buildings are occupied all the time by different sorts of people. That somehow didn't seem to be something we discussed. I was taught by a lot of modernist architects who were brilliant, but they really were interested in in kind of formal compositional issues, even whilst they pretended that they weren't. And so that was quite complicated. And I think that meant that out of that, I think the thing that kind of drives me is I just become endlessly interested in the kind of small everyday actions that reproduce our society in one way rather than another. That's really fascinating. And there, there are two there are two points there that I'd like to, to kind of pick up and, and dig a little bit deeper into. The first one about class, that still seems incredibly relevant today. It's being talked about probably more now, I imagine, than, than it was then. Did you have a sense when you were studying architecture that this was more specific to architecture itself as a course? Or did that sort of cut across your experience of university? That's a really interesting question. And I think it felt quite endemic in architecture in a way that maybe it didn't feel quite so strongly in other subjects. I mean, I guess most of my other friends that weren't studying architecture were studying fine art or design, and it didn't seem to be quite the same. And I had, you know, there are all those anecdotes of recollections from, from you know, school. And I'd, I'd got a scholarship to go to a girls' public data school trust, so a kind of, not a public school, but not a grammar school, but a kind of, a school that was very ambitious for its students in class terms. And so what I wanted to be actually was a photographer, and they said that girls couldn't be photographers because the equipment was too heavy, which was a great thing to find out and turned out, of course, not to be the case quite quickly. But it was kind of clear that that was it was actually and then they said it was fine to be an architect. And that felt like it wasn't about it was about profession versus trade. I mean, it was just this really odd thing that, that their idea of a photographer was that you would be a commercial person. And if you studied architecture, you would become a professional. So these kind of class nuances are really complex, aren't they? And I think the kind of class mix. It was actually quite broad when I studied at the Bartlett in the 70s. It wasn't called the Bartlett. It was called the School of Environmental Studies for a brief period of time. And you could get in with just two E's and you could get in off your portfolio. So actually, we were quite a mixed bunch. And there were as many females as males. And it was a modular system, which in the 1970s was really unusual. And the first thing they did was teach us to douse for water. So it was kind of very peculiar and rather wonderful. But it is still true that in terms of the class thing still was very strong in that, that people even in these kind of opening up, these attempts to open up architectural education, we were all, by that time, whatever our backgrounds, we were all middle class in a very unconscious way. Mm. That's that's really interesting. I mean, what's potentially... quite depressing is I'm not, I'm not I'm not talking from a hugely informed position here but just from observations more that whether that has changed much or or sadly not I'm not sure and I'm not sure how much that's linked then to the future careers beyond study as well and financial limitations but yeah. that's a separate that's <laughs> a separate topic but that's really interesting that, that there was that observation there and then the other one and this is something that speaks very personally to me as well is this idea of not wanting to be an architect did you before you started studying architecture did you did you have a sense of that or is that something that came about through that course of formal education? Again, that's a really interesting question because I think it's quite hard to pin down. I think that I went into architecture as a kind of negative thing. They wouldn't let me be a photographer and they and I let them not let me be a photographer. And they basically said with the A-levels that I had, which was kind of two arts and two sciences, that I should be either I should conserve old paintings or I should be an architect. And I was like... I don't want to conserve old paintings. So I ended up in architecture a bit by mistake. But then the interview process at what is now the Bartlett was 
just wonderful. So although I felt, you know, quite misfitting with in terms of how the course was taught, it was very hippie. We had studio lunches, you know, we would take it in turns to make lunch and they would be huge lunches. And, and so I turn up a kind of South London suburban child with no idea what architecture is from a whole family with no idea what architecture is and, and really never did understand at all. And we're served this really glumpy lentil stew and there's paint all over everything. And I'm like, this is definitely where I want to come. So, so the kind of reasons for coming were already not necessarily focused on the sense that there is this role called architect and that that's what I wanted to do. And then I think, yeah, very. And then that, that continued. And it sounds like that was a bit the same for you too, that you, I mean, you're not, you, you're not exactly practicing as an architect now, are you? Not at all. And maybe similarly, I don't think I definitely wanted to be an artist. Actually, I didn't. I wanted to be an artist. And I went to a school that, that said, no, 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 you don't. It was quite an academic school. Like, you'll, you know, you'll be penniless living in a garret. I mean, the irony is you can now be an architect, penniless living in a garret. <laughs> but the sense was that's a profession. I distinctly remember a, and maybe this was a, a massive lack of confidence, but really this rising sense of panic towards the end of my architecture undergraduate of I don't feel I fit in here I know what I'm interested in but I have no idea how to whether there are jobs in what I'm interested in and so I'm intrigued by was was that you say that there was perhaps no one defining moment but what le- what took you from the from those studies or maybe it was still during your studies onwards essentially out uh, into into the, the the kind of the world that you've created was there a defining moment there or a, a clear st- a stepping stone and I know it's always funny because you look back and dots sometimes join up that when you're when you're there making decisions or looking at opportunities don't necessarily seem apparent yeah I think that's right and I do I mean I I have this honest feeling which may be wrong. I have this honest feeling that that I've always rather fallen into things by accident, but that that's because I kind of do know the sorts of things that I that I wanted to do, and I think the opportunities were there more widely than the, perhaps they are now. I mean, a lot of people that I studied with didn't go on to become architects, and there was a kind of idea that that was fine. Again, I think slightly to do with that period, but also I think. You know, it is the wider context and what it makes possible. And so studying the 1970s in London when it was pretty well derelict and it was very easy to squat and it was very, there was a lot of community-based action going on. Tolmer Square, you know, just up the road at Euston Station, at Euston, Tolmer Square, Coin Street down on the South Bank, Covent Garden. I mean, we all squatted in Covent Garden to stop them as part of a kind of whole move to stop them, you know, running a motorway through it. So... It wasn't even our tutors, really, that pushed that. But there was a whole ethos, I think, in at that time, both at the school in terms of the students, but also kind of more broadly. There were plenty of architects. You know, there was Brian Anson at the Architectural Association and the Architects Revolutionary Council. There was a whole lot of things going on that it was very easy to be part of. As I said, they weren't kind of built into our education, but we just we just kind of absorbed them. And that in turn, you know, it's also, you know, and it was really, it was easy to live incredibly cheaply in London. I mean, that's, it's kind of, for me, that's a huge thing and a huge difference about what you can do now and what the gaps and opportunities are. Because now what you do is you have to find some opportunity that allows you to earn an income that allows you to stay in London or another big city. But we were all, yeah, we could squat. There were loads of kind of part-time jobs, like Covent Garden was in the middle of becoming a bit more hipster. And so we all, like, we shared a job as a bouncer at one of the first kind of burger bar. And I mean, it wasn't, it was after the Hard Rock, but it was a kind of copy of the Hard Rock and it had a club downstairs. And so there were things like that. We could earn income quite easily. There were lots of kind of little part-time jobs that you could do where you didn't really need to have any experience. And as I say, yeah, we squatted or we lived in short life houses. So we lived very cheaply. And I think that just meant in terms of the kind of opportunities that we had, they were just much more wide ranging. And I went, I went for a job as a 
trainee journalist with building design, very much absentmindedly. I was like, oh, I quite like to do that. I'm quite interested in writing. And I'd been told at architecture school that, that I was a good journalistic writer. And that was actually a kind of criticism of me not being a good academic writer. So I thought, sod you. Okay, I'll become an And I got the job. And so, again, these things were just kind of the opportunities were, were, were there, I think, more opportunities. And obviously Matrix, being involved in the beginnings of Matrix, the new architecture movement, and then the, the feminist design collective and kind of women who were very trying to work out what it was that was problematic for us as women in architecture. You know, that was something that was also quite organic initially, really. I mean, it connected, obviously, to, to the women's movement and to consciousness raising, but it also connected to kind of left-wing groups, to you know, civil rights actions and riots in, in South London, like the riots in Brixton, you know, that, you know, there was just a lot of things. London was quite chaotic and rather, yeah, open to possibilities, I think, much more open than now. It's really fascinating hearing you paint that picture of a city which I can sort of imagine, but I can't, it doesn't feel, doesn't feel familiar to me, that sort of I suppose there's familiarity in falling into things and that still seems to be something that, that of course happens, but of being able to live cheaply and time, the freedom to explore ideas because of time, there seems to be, by pressurising people so much, perhaps some of those opportunities to question and think alternatively and create alternatively are squashed out to an extent and there's something very interesting if you then come back also to those issues of class of now there is t having having time feels more of a privilege and sometimes you see that particularly maybe in a, some emerging practices or new forms of practice that there's been time there that that other people who are having to work three or four jobs to pay their rent in London yeah. don't have those opportunities and so it feels like quite a unique time in 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 London to to get that that number of different perspectives thinking very creatively and from first principles and critically at the world sorry I'm rambling a bit a bit no, no, I, but absolutely and I think I mean I think it happened I don't know but I think it happened in Glasgow I think it happened to some extent in Newcastle Belfast you know the big the bigger cities, I think, which were also in a sort of similar state, mainly Liverpool, Manchester, you can kind of, you know, those, that was, yeah, that was, I think that was an experience, but I also think it was quite particular. And it wasn't just that, you know, the whole of what is now Fitzrovia was basically a slum. It was that there were also kind of local authority and obviously in London, the greater London Council, the GLC, that were going through a radical moment and were funding all sorts of schemes and even local authorities who were very canny, even after a kind of more conservative view came into being. You know, we moved in at one stage into short life, into a whole series of short life houses in Islington, because Islington didn't have the money to renovate them. The, the, the government wasn't letting them renovate them. So they had some very creative means of getting people to live in them and do them up, you know, by, I mean, by painting and kind of putting new locks on and just by living in them in very, you know, so like there was, there was those kinds of things too. We were also in a setting, it wasn't just us, we were in a setting where kind of all sorts of things supported that kind of more local community-based and, as you say, time and space. I mean, one of the things I love about all the stories around squatting is how many women it brought into architecture, because women would live in squats, would do building work on the squats. And I, you know, I can think of several personal examples of, of people that I taught or taught with when I was teaching architecture who, studio, who'd come that route. They'd come as mature students because they'd started out as squatters and then they'd become really interested in building something Chris Wall writes about a lot. That's fascinating. And I wonder how many women you would find coming into architecture today from that That's perspective. <laughs> and yet, despite these institutions and organisations that seem to be acting in more creative ways, Matrix still developed. So you obviously, or maybe not obviously, but it, it sense that you still 
felt that there was something missing in the way that the built environment was being shaped and created. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there were, there, there were so many different women involved in different periods with what is now, you know, with what we call matrix as a kind of umbrella and with very different perspectives on that question. But I think for me, what was really interesting about Matrix and all the different people who came into it was we were all trying to work out what was going on here. You know, words like sexism didn't exist. And we lived in a world where we were still being taught that, you know, the built environment was neutral, really, that it that didn't, you know, gender or race or any of those things didn't make any difference. You were just designing for people. And that's what you did. And the fact that that came from, and I'm going to go back to the class thing, you came from a kind of middle class entitlement about who, how you described people and how you expected people to be what you thought they were doing and what they'd be like, what kinds of environments they wanted. We were really, we really wanted to kind of work that out. And for some, for some women, like, you know, Annie Thorne will talk both about, who was a key founder of the design practice, will talk about you know, her experiences at architecture school, particularly at Diploma, and how sexist they were. But we'll all, and we'll also talk about, you know, being the only woman on site where the building, the site offices still had, you know, naked pictures of women draped over building products and getting wolf whistled all the time. You know, that that was, you know, all those things were happening. And the idea, the idea that you would somehow, that really what you should be is a housewife and you might do interior design on the side was still, it was kind of dying out, but it was still around. It was still around as a, as a kind of, it was there in the ether as, as something that, that worked against you, that you were kind of in the wrong field, really. Moving on then to, to everything else that you are continuing to do in your, your, your career, have there been any other key moments that have driven that, or has it always been more of one conversation or one project has opened up a perspective on something else, which you've then felt a sort of urgency to, well, that needs, we need change in that arena. Or do you remember a specific, and and I'm thinking particularly around your work with, around access, was there a specific moment that, that changed your perspective on that or not changed your perspective, but was a catalyst to want to want to create change? I'm, I think that, and it's it's partly why I didn't necessarily give a very good answer to the matrix question because I think that my interests and my the things that I focused on were not necessarily very representative of many of the other women in matrix many of whom were really interested in doing good community-based architectural projects that made a difference in the world for for women you know who made use of those buildings and that to me is absolutely astounding and inspiring I think for me, it was this ongoing thing about being endlessly interested in how we understand our everyday, ordinary, small actions and how they reproduce society in one way rather than another. That's always been the thing that I can niggle away at. I don't know why. I've sort of explained it, I think, to do with maybe that was something that, you know, about not quite understanding that was going on in architecture school. You know what? I don't get this. It doesn't. It just doesn't. I don't fit smoothly here. I can't work out what's going on. So, I think all my work in many different ways here has been about the kind of personal and the social and material everyday practices. And I'm always kind of so the so yes, I've fallen into lots of things, and in many ways it's been to do with whatever the opportunities are that arise. But I think that I am the kind of thing around tangle, untangling the way that we think about disability and ability. It, it just felt, it just became a thing where it's like, why, why is this something that just gets, why is this so stuck in a kind of assumption that disability is this kind of category that's non-ahistorical? You know, it's not like gender somehow. It's, you know, when it's treated in architecture, it's treated as this kind of afterthought. It's an add-on. And it just really interested me. And I had, I got, I got bored at one stage and ended up getting a job with, very briefly, with the Centre for Accessible Environments that do lots of really good work. But for me, again, it was a really peculiar setup because there were no disabled people there. They were training people to be access consultants, you know, very good. But, but it was kind of like there was no problematization of the place of, you know, how disabled people are dis- 
defined and how they're thought of. And I began to meet quite a lot of disabled artists and I began to meet quite a lot of people working in the museums and gallery sector who were much more creative and critical about access and inclusion and what it meant and how you might do it differently. So I met those people through CAE and they were involved in CAE, but they weren't, there wasn't anywhere there that it was possible to kind of take these things forward because of the sort of organization that it was and is. And then when I just started talking to, I, I, I worked a couple of times with Zoe Partington, who's my co-founder of the Disordering Architecture Project, who is a disabled artist herself. And it was just, it kind of reminded me of the early days of feminism, you know, not the early days, the second wave, the, the wave of feminism that I was involved in. It was incredibly energetic. It was incredibly angry. It was incredibly interested in trying to work out what's going on and why this keeps happening. So I, I, I'm just, I'm kind of continuously stunned that disability is, is still stuck in, it's being taught the same way that it was being taught when I was an undergraduate student in the 70s. So it's still something which is, seems to be a bit of embarrassment, something you only really learn at a professional level, as, or you do a sort of special case for special needs. It's just not built in in any way. And the literature and the activity, you know, the disability activism, the arts, the scholarship, just isn't, isn't part of the canon in any way. And that, I mean, I've always been interested in what does get put in the canon and what doesn't, what gets left out, what doesn't become part of it, and also how that changes, how that has trends. So when I was a student, sociology was kind of key part of the canon, but in a very, what happened to it architecturally was quite peculiar. Oh, and Marxism, of course. We learned a lot about Marxism. I've read Althusser from cover to cover. Probably neither of you know who Althusser is. <laughs> it's fine. There's no reason you should. He was on trend. He did kill his wife. I think it was Althusser. Oh. So I think the the disability thing just grew out of that whole kind of the same thing. Like, what's going on here? Why why are we doing this? Why is and why is this so difficult to change? What is it about everyday actions that mean that it's and and how do you change it? Which I think was also part of you know the matrix was that idea that yes, you need to make these you know you need to actually provide new types of buildings and, and increase the ambitions of women who are not used to having the opportunities to build something that they actually want and need. And I think with that was about trying to work out, as I said before, you know, what, what are the relationships between gender and space? When does space matter? And at the same time, if you can work that out, how do you change it? And I, the, one of the really big campaigns when I was at, well, actually, even before I went to architecture school, really, was the women's refuge movement. And Pitsy, who was herself a woman who'd suffered domestic violence and was quite a difficult character. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, you followed her because she was fantastic. But the that shift, that shift by providing those buildings and by just working and working around all those issues like reclaim, you know, all sorts of things, reclaim the night around, were all about shifting a culture, shifting a kind of set of attitudes so that, and maybe it's, you know, it's always three steps forward and two steps back or two steps forward and three steps back. But, you know, when I was young, it was considered completely fine for a man to beat his wife. It was just normal. It's just like one of those things that happened. And we live in a world where that's no longer the case. And that is out of that kind of activism. It's out of women really pushing and pushing in the way that, you know, a lot of work around the the complete inacceptability of rape and, and how that's a problem with men, not a problem for women to deal with. That, again, is like, which comes back and comes back, but it's just a really, that's how it changes, I think, by, by, by just snowballing all those small actions until more and more people do think, um, you know, that's not right. And I think for me, that's a big thing about disability. It's like, we need to stop having these stereotypes of disability where people are either, you know, wonderful role models or they're, they're benefit scroungers. I mean, it's just, it, it's time to move on. And it's time for us as non-disabled people to be the ones who do that moving. What I'm in, intrigued about is clearly you come across as a very curious person. You come across as someone who 
firstly, it's obviously incredibly analytical and you see a situation and you also have this incredible sense of social justice and that harking back to, well, that's just not right. But then that's followed up with this curiosity to understand, well, where does it come from? What's exacerbating it? What's maintaining that cycle? And I guess I'm I'm interested, and this is going slightly off the, the questions, but what keeps that energy going? What keeps that drive of because these are these are not easy, they're not easy societal things to change. And I'm I'm fascinated of as to how what continues to drive you it, it because it, particularly in a case where perhaps it's not it's not from personal own lived in experience it's from observing another situation i mean i think some of it does come from the personal because i think it is that thing about just feeling you know that you that there are way that somehow there's a way of conforming and you haven't quite got it and i think quite a lot of people and particularly women i think feel that because there's roles about how you conform which which don't fit many of us really or if we fit them we're having to distort ourselves in some way so I've often felt quite upset or frustrated or knocked back by a kind of policing and everyday policing that goes on about how you should behave and what is correct and that even includes around design activism a couple of years ago somebody said to me your trouble Joss is you're just a design activist I'm like oh okay I didn't realise that was a problem. <laughs> and, then, and that was rather an old-fashioned thing to be. That was the criticism. So I think that, you know, I, I equally have been upset by those things. But in the end, I don't really care. Because in the end, I don't... I, I've managed to find a way through life where mainly I can... That I have control over what I do. I mean, I love the stuff that's going on now around kind of reclaiming time and resisting work and passive ways resisting work and particularly the pressure you know it being so pressurized and it being so non-stop and I think that somehow I discovered that quite early on I mean I do you know I do I have passion and I work hard on things but I think I've always I worked out from really early on and it's partly because we were quite poor as kids is if you don't have large outgoings you can you've got much more control over your life and I mentioned the squatting but then when my daughter was little we lived on a boat when people weren't really living on boats in London because it was just a really cheap and rather wonderful way to live. And so I think I've taken control over that and that in turn. So that's a kind of personal thing which allows me to have the design activism. And then I think the thing that keeps me going is just other people. It's just the wonderfulness of other people who are also not conforming in whatever way that is and a lot of the disabled artists that I work with are very interesting in how they make creative practice which may not necessarily be about their impairments but is very rich and quite learns from that experience of, of you know what it is the kind of creativity that that non-normative being classified as non-normative gives you so I th and my energy at the moment is so definitely from I just finding disability activism, finding disability. I just want other people to read it and get engaged with it. It's just the scholarship. It's just astoundingly beautiful and poetic. And I think for me, you know, meeting Zoe Partington, meeting lots of other people who have really, you know, are themselves passionate and do, do look for change. So I think that 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 keeps my energy levels up, and I'm you know still both. I love working collaboratively. I sounds. I think you probably do, Fiona, from what you the work you've been doing. I get huge pleasures. I mean, you know, there's lots of frustrations and there's lots of difficulties and all of that. And and as I've got older, just as you know, I lived on a boat, so it's cheap. What I do now is I don't work with anybody that I don't think I'm going to be able to work with. I'm quite self-centered about that and quite selfish, but I can. I'm at the end of my quote-unquote career. I don't have any, I don't have to do any of that stuff. So that's a wonderful freedom to be able to work with people that I really enjoy working from and that I learn from. And working finally back again in an academic institution, working at the Bartlett, 
I'm just working with the most just really interesting researchers, PhD students, and seeing a lot of activism going on, a lot of people managing to do something in what are much more difficult times. And that's hugely exciting for me to, to see that happening. What is so in, inspiring to hear you talk, and I know that you, you inspire generations to continue and build on the, the foundations that you're, you're creating. And I think that that point about not, not conforming is huge. I mean, for me personally, I had my own experience of being sectioned when I was 21, and that for me was a life-defining moment. I think of life pre that and life after that, and definitely life after that has been much easier to follow what I want to do because any sense of societal norms has gone out the window once society tells you that your mind isn't sound you sort of there's no shame left there's nothing there's there's nothing to sort of need to hide behind it's sort of well society's sort of written me off so anything I achieve now is a bonus and once that's happened suddenly the freedom is actually really wonderful, which is a sort of odd out, outside of that. But I can see how that sort of the the constraints of society ha, are responsible for a lot and, and a lot of, of challenges that I see some of my friends having. Not that I would wish, you know, that <laughs> going through that route of being sectioned on anyone, that it is a strange silver lining that's yeah. there. Yeah, no, and I think that's right. I think there is a there's a kind of and I know quite a lot of people who've been through variations of that where it is, it's like, yeah, you're finally, you know, you're definitely in the non-normative category, whatever you do. And so you might as well, you know, make the most, that is a, a great creative and critical force. And that's the thing to do is to make something of that, however difficult it is sometimes. I mean, I do also think, you know, it's easy for me because obviously I started by talking about class and, and the fact that you know, I'd come from this kind of quite complex class background, but it's also true that by the time I went to uni, you know, we were properly suburban middle class, really white middle class. And I also know people, you know, because through teaching access courses, for example, you know, architecture or being an architecture technician or any of those kind of connected jobs is also a way to a more decent income. And so I've made that choice that I can manage, but it's a kind of quite a middle class choice to be like, oh, I don't care whether I have much money or not because I've kind of, I've managed never to be on the breadline and I've not, you know. So I think having said that and agreeing completely with you, I also think it's not, it's not suggesting that people who make a clear decision that they want to have a decent career in architecture, you know, that's similar. That's also about taking a position, finding a route, making the best and if that's for you and your family or you and your household then or you and your parents then that's still a really powerful thing I don't you know the kind of pressure that everybody should be I don't know campaigning I don't want to you know suggest that pressure I just it's it's what's motivated me but it's not to say that it's kind of better than or than what other people have how other people have you know made sense of and managed to survive in this capitalist world of ours I also think that's that's you being very humble but that that seems to be by by nature but I I totally take your point as well of different different drivers that that lead people to very different places and everyone has their their reason for why they do what they do and their very powerful reasonings could you tell us about someone who's perhaps considered a forgotten woman who who inspires your work yeah, I'm. This was a really. This was also a really interesting question. So thank you to you and to Sarah. And when I thought about it, it was like nobody came up, obviously, or rather, huge numbers of people came up. You know, huge numbers of women. And I think I really want to honour the kind of collective processes like the Parlour Wiki, Wiki design process, which I know Sarah has been involved in, which is about making sure that individual women aren't left out of history. So it's like we need to be. You know, there's so many women who have been forgotten. We just need to be working to bring them all forward. But when I thought about it, the, the woman that I mentioned was somebody called Maggie Davis, Nee Hines, who was a very a key pioneer, really, in the Union of Physically Impaired Against Segregation, UPIAS group that somebody called Paul Hunt, himself a disabled man, initiated in the 1970s. And the disability rights movements, both in this country and in 
the States in particular, but also in other places, were actually really strong in that period. They were very informed by the civil rights movements, and the civil rights movements informed them, just as the feminist movements all intersected. So there was a lot of things going on in that area, which is kind of, again, it's kind of got, the whole thing has got forgotten. And it's something that's really relevant to architecture. And I've had email conversations with Maggie. And she was, as somebody who was recently disabled in that period, she just couldn't believe that she wasn't allowed to live with her husband, who was also disabled, also uses a wheelchair, Ken. And she just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was the same thing. It was like, what's going on here? Why is it that I, that I can't? And so it's really, we just forget that it's not that long ago. It's the 1970s, 50 years ago, that people with disabilities were institutionalized. And well, it's the same, and you know, again, there's so much around, you know, mental institutions and asylums and how, who got banged up in those and why they did. And for Maggie and Ken, so they actually, not only did they politically act and develop this whole social model of disability, which was about, it's about the barriers out there. It's not about our impairments. It's the barriers we have to face that make life hard. But it was also about how you got out of those institutions. And if you think these are people who are in these institutions, you know, if you're talking about campaigning, that's a really tough call. And they, Maggie was very central to a to something called the Independent Living Movement, which we need to know much more about. And she was really central to the design of a cooperative housing scheme called Grove Road in Sutton in Ashfield, where they part of designing their own homes with, with some architects which were kind of the first, uh, well, they weren't necessarily the first wheelchair accessible homes, but they were certainly the first to be designed by people who themselves used wheelchairs. And that became part of a much bigger campaign. And again, you know, if you talk to Maggie, she's very modest about this. She immediately starts mentioning other people. She immediately starts talking about how she couldn't believe how this movement snowballed. You know, it came out of her and Ken just thinking there was a basic human right of being able to live together. And for me, I, yeah, I want to reclaim her. I want to reclaim that whole disability rights movement here and elsewhere and see that things that we've got very stuck with, like the, the building regulations like Part M in the UK, came out of a distortion of that. So they're not some sort of technical, they're not some scientist writing on a board. They're socially constructed and they come out of, on the one hand, disability activism and on the other, the way that that got translated and kind of mm, smoothed over and objectified by a whole series of processes. So that, you know, when we look at the building regulations as just this kind of technical thing where you can just stick in these templates into your plans, it so misses, it just forgets the work that Maggie Davis and huge numbers of other disabled people in really difficult, I mean, mainly at that period, physically disabled people, other kinds of impairment, people with other kinds of impairment got more, much more active more recently. And of course, now that's very centred around autism, but also around environmental sensitivities. But that kind of, that's a movement. That's not, that's something we should be learning the history of in architecture. Not, you know, not all the time, but like in one lecture, just be nice to know, wouldn't it? It's those human stories that I think also help to build that movement. I, mean, I wish I wish you had given... We had one lecture on universal access during four years of undergrad study, and not once was there a, an example of or a historic reference to this is what has happened and this is why we're where we are. And the power that comes out of that, that simple thing of a couple should have the right to live together is something that everybody can empathize with and that it's getting that belief behind it so it doesn't just become a set of rules but it becomes this is a bigger idea of these are rights that everybody has so how do we make that situation happen yeah I wish you had been giving us that that lecture for you what does an equitable city or an equitable built environment look like and I think it's pretty clear from what I've said so far that, that I'm really interested in talking about, you know, what makes equitable design and what is it, what 
what is it that's normative in the built environment that we have? I mean, there's lots of things where maybe you know space doesn't matter, but what is it that does matter and how does that link to social and spatial and material practices and you know how can that lead to and i'm going to steal from disability studies which talks a lot about spatial and environmental justice you know what is it's not access and inclusion or even equity it's about justice and that kind of pushes it even further i think but the other thing that comes out of that disability work and i think to some extent out of the feminist stuff is there's never a final solution architects are so trained to to kind of have a solution and to have that as a a solution that is architectural, that's a built solution. And, uh, you know, and that's, it's like there's a thing, whether it's a ramp or a cycle rack or there's a thing and, and somehow that thing, and that's quite an interesting discussion, you know, that we might talk about a bit more, which is, you know, is that since that's what architecture is, is there a way of doing architecture which isn't just about the things, but what is about the processes and the practices and so for me, an equitable city is something that's always emergent. It's never finished. It's always about lots of things happening on all sorts of different fronts. And I can give loads of examples of that. You know, I wrote when I, the piece that I wrote for the Matrix book, Making Space, Women in a Man-Made Environment, is about public space. And it's about, it starts with the thing about just how we teach girls to kind of keep closed in, you know, to keep their bodies closed in. And we teach boys to open up and be much more active. The estate that I live on now, I overlook the children's playground so I can see the kind of patterns of who plays when and when the older groups take over and who's out there. And of course, who's out there all the time is the boys and the girls are much less present than when they are present. They're much more awkward in their own bodies. And I was writing about that in the 1980s and you know that's still very true. Now, what we can do about that as architects is, you know, there are some things we can do. We can do things around gender budgeting. We can do things around actually analysing schemes, analysing playgrounds and seeing who's actually got the benefit, who's getting the most things. And, and we can decide that's all right. We can disguise, decide that, yes, we should have loads of football pitches because we need to get young men off the streets. I don't know, but we need to think about it in a gendered and erased and around disability as well. So... I think gender budgeting is a really interesting mechanism. It's something that happens quite a lot of planning and in, in kind of urban design. So basically what you're doing is you're analysing a scheme or a project and you're thinking about who's getting, and it, it, you know, it does start with the money. Who's getting money? Who's getting resources? Who's getting money? Who's getting time? So a playground's a really obvious one. Like if it's got a huge football pitch and it's got a few swings, Who's using that? Are the places for parents, you know, whatever they're, or carers to sit? Who's, who's being recognised in this? And one of the big things for me, you know, cycling. Cycling is such a thing at the moment, and it's very much, if I'm going to be devil's advocate for me, cycling, the kind of real emphasis on urban cycling is very much about a kind of individualised self-actualization view of the world. It's completely neoliberal. doesn't mean that it's wrong, but what it does is support, you know, again, gender budgeting for cycling shows that it is mainly young men who use those use that the most. And then there's a the thing about, oh, how can we get more women on bikes? But it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe we could think about this a bit differently. Like, what is it that women would, you know, how do women want to get around? And if you're looking after kids, then the whole biking thing is a slightly different thing. So it's about, you know, it's supporting a certain sort of urban warrior, which some women can be, but many women can't and at the same time all the infrastructure around cycling again I'm not saying it's wrong I cycle but it's what it's it's not thinking through carefully what the implications are for disabled people it's like what other things could you spend that money on the amount of people male and female who would benefit from more public toilets it's fantastic and it's a different group of people it's people who are more socially disadvantaged but somehow so that's a very, that turned out to be rather long-winded, but it is, gender budgeting means that you actually have to analyse those things before you make policy decisions. Absolutely, and it brings it back to, to raw data, and again, then that cannot be argued with, of, of yeah. that analysis and that awareness again. 
it's also really good about unconscious bias because you know the the kind of assumption that we should be supporting cycling which we should but the kind of gender bias that the the unconscious bias is built into it about if you're not fit you know if you're not fit enough to get on a bike that's your fault that's because you have not looked after yourself properly which is a kind of it is a deeply neoliberal viewpoint on the world and it's being implemented by people who would never think of themselves as being like that so it's really getting into those kind of attitudes I think and picking apart those assumptions like you said things that that are seen as well that's a good thing for society and actually digging a bit deeper and well is it or or is it the sort of the lukewarm of version that that's not really working for anyone or it's just working as you I like you describe this description of urban warriors yes. what is a what is an urban warrior for for you I mean the bit of London that I'm in is taken over by mainly boy racers and some of those boy racers are women but they're young people who have are already very mobile and are made much more mobile by having electric bikes, by having scooters, by having feeling that they have every right to be on the pavement, to go very fast. This makes me sound like a grumpy old woman, and I don't mean that. I mean, we just need to look at those things, like who is not, who is not part of that? And that might be fine, because maybe that can go on and something else can go on, but it's just who is not part of that? And it goes back to my thing about girls and playing, you know, and girls and equipment and girls and that we still, all of us, you know, we, we tend to, to still worry that girls, you know, take up space. We have all sorts of ways to stop girls taking up space ever since she's throwing like a girl about how young how girls and young women learn to, to occupy their own bodies in an uncomfortable way. And lots of young boys learn that too. I mean, it's not just, but it is. And that in turn has all sorts of, you know, space can't, you know, architecture can't change that, but it can be part of a discussion about how we can stop that happening, how those practices don't need to be, yeah, exactly what you were saying, Fiona, unpicked. How can they be unpicked to stop, to make them more obvious and less acceptable? And that it seems that then there are certain practices that are becoming mainstream and exacerbated in an, in that unconscious way that, that means that those people behind them wouldn't necessarily see themselves as sexist or ableist. They are being that so how do we support us all to be able to, you seem to have this fantastic ability to, to observe. Do you see what's happening when, when you do this and that sort of wake up moments for, for, yeah, for I, us all? I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been so powerful and so important. And it's also, also been, it's been distorted in lots of ways as kind of big institutions have taken it up and at the level of appearances. But that, that shifting, which is like the issue around racial inequality, is a white problem. And we need to be doing something about that. We need to be doing something about our own assumptions. And I think that thing around gender, I mean, I think women have been doing it around gender forever. I think around disability, it's done surprisingly little and needs to be done more. I think around sexuality, the whole transgender movement and the kind of non-binary is really opening up new ways of thinking about all these things. The kind of whatever non-binary thing that I think a lot of younger people just, it's like, yeah, whatever, who cares whether you're male or female? I mean, I think for me, that's really powerful and vital to how things might change in the future that moves us beyond kind of binaries and beyond identities. The other thing is, there's so much really good work going on in this field. You know, one of the artists that works for Disordinary, some, sometimes Raquel Mezaguri, for example, is working in Coventry on a whole project called The Resting City. And resting is a kind of thing, obviously it's got a very immediate benefit for people with chronic impairments, for older people, but it's also about an attitude. You know, it's like if you're resting, you're thinking about things slowing down, you're thinking about time, about us reclaiming our time, and not being not rushing around the city, sort of needing to get from A to B as quickly as possible. So I, I just think that's a really powerful project. Somebody called Jess 
Tom, who's a performer and artist who has Tourette's, has been very involved in the kind of relaxed venue movement, which is looking at how you might have performances, events, or, you know, that are... And you can do it on a tug-in. It's a time thing. You can do it inclusive. So you can have some inclusive sessions where everybody knows there may be people who, who make unexpected noises and that that's fine because you know that's, that's it's not a problem because you're, you know, you're part of that. You're not, you're not there to police it or even, again, on a kind of unconscious bias type of policing. And that's the Battersea Arts Centre has been really central to that. There's just the critical design lab at the University of Vanderbilt, in, which has been looking at critical access in the States. The Disability Visibility Project in New York. Just some, you know, some really... The kind of campaigns and the, the kind of actual kind of architectural improvements, if we can take the word architecture very widely are happening all around us, the kind of shifts in practices. And you're going to hear me say it again, you know, why aren't they part of architectural education and practice? Why are they just somehow not? What is this bounded thing that allows some things in and, and has to keep others out or is very anxious about other things? Why can't disabled artists be tutors? Why is that sort of unnerving? Or, or why letting... I mean, we've done that, and we've had disabled artists as tutors, but they're often very constrained in what they're allowed to do, and they're kind of kept out of assessment. So there's kind of a whole set of things, again, about where boundaries get policed and how they get policed and how they can also be bridged in very creative and enjoyable ways. So without wanting to ask you to look into a crystal ball, but while asking you to look into a crystal ball or project forward... And maybe in these two areas of activism, in particular, gender and disability, what do you see happening in both those arenas in the next 50 years? Do you see, for want of a better term, rosier futures or not in terms of our current trajectory? And it's interesting that you're saying you you sense that there's this momentum around what's happening in gender and architecture, women in architecture, the built environment but possibly less so in terms of disability. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, and then maybe it's why I don't get depressed. I think that there is no perfect future, uh, which I know you don't either, but that that sense that, you know, we're on some sort of trajectory, particularly given the political situation we're in and particularly given the climate emergency, I think that change happens... It's always two steps forward, three steps back, or three steps forward, two steps back. I've said it before. It's always some things change and other things get, you know, I'm not going to call it capitalism, but, you know, the, the, the kind of normative model of society is very good at reproducing itself and changing itself in order to reproduce itself. It's not static. It's not like, oh, well, we'll, we'll manage to make this bit change and then it will always stay changed. It's always up for contest it's always partial it's always partly immersioning and partly being beaten back if you're going to use some sort of progressive metaphor and therefore my view of the future is I just I'm just sort of hopeful that some things will some things that we that we take for granted now even though we shouldn't will change and that some things will probably get worse and because there's such a strong kind of white supremacist, it's a rather stereotyped version of it, but because there's such a strong kind of anti-immigrant, you know, there's all sorts of things going on at the moment which are quite worrying. And I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm both anxious about, you know, the importance of wanting to make improvements and trying to find ways to do that, whatever they are, and that that's always quite tough and it can burn you out. And I know lots of people who have been burnt out by it, but it's kind of a really important time to be doing it. If it and, and how you do it obviously relates to so many things about your own personal circumstances and your own politics. But I also think there's just, I have an optimism because I just think, you know, every day, if you think of, there's just so much going on, you know, whether it's part W, black, black females in architecture, Muslim women in architecture, the Disneyland Architecture Project, Sound Advice, 
manual labours, edit collective, the saw, the section of architectural workers, the whole kind of revisiting the problem of inequality in architectural practice. I mean, I'm just rolling off a few that I know. And I feel like there's just a lot of that going on. And some of that is opportunity. It's like people just seeing they don't want to. And many of that, that being women or people of colour, who just still think there's something wrong with mainstream architectural practice, just as I did and I think you did, Fiona, and that, and are finding routes to do, and they're quite often kind of single, they're not necessarily single campaigns, but something like manual labours, you know, very focused on the work ethic, on, you know, our ideas about work, or they're, they're kind of quite, or black females in architecture really looking to support and amplify the voices of black women. In the, in the mainly in the profession, that kind of it's like you have to focus on one thing. I'm going to say Matt and Fiona. You have you focus on you know children, you know getting children more involved in the built environment. The the, and I feel that that's very rich. There's that kind of huge rich flowering of things going on at the moment. The difference perhaps to the 70s, and you might both disagree with this, but the difference for me to the 70s is. We had and we were taught much more structural, kind of conceptual ways of framing the world. So it wasn't like, and, and some of consciousness raising was about, you know, a, as an individual, as a woman, by talking to other women, you were like, oh, we've all had this problem. This isn't just, you know, the problem with no name, the Betty Friedan thing. You know, oh, it's not just us that somehow hates doing, being the one that's always loaded with the housework. It's everybody. It's every woman. You know, oh, that maybe that's a bigger problem. And I think that we had a lot of, there were kind of big conceptual frameworks which saw it at the societal level as, you know, disability stuff around barriers does now, the social model. And that a lot of that has got, I would, this is me being controversial. I think a lot of that has got lost. Those kinds of ways of talking about things are less easy. The self-actualization model, the individual individualization, you sorting out, you know, trying to sort out your own life with a few of your friends. Maybe that's all we can do at the moment, but that's a much stronger model, which means that you have all these fragmented groups doing fantastic work, but they're just too busy and too tired to be part of any larger network. And I think that the in the 70s, there were more models for that. There was a community technical aid, you know, like legal aid, but community technical aid network, where for technical aid centres network, where all the kind of community-based practices and the kind of shop fronts where people offered technical aid, there, there were kind of there was grants for doing feasibility studies, you know, really, you know, a network with the conferences every year. You know, and those networks, I guess it's something really stupid, but it's like, you know, if indigenous peoples across the globe can meet, have regular conferences, network, you know, network and have conferences about their experiences of indigeneity and of discrimination, which they do. It's like, why, what is it that's making it, is it just, what's making it impossible for all these fantastic groups not to somehow be part, you know, come together to form, keep those differences, but somehow be able to be a bigger, make a bigger impact, I guess. And that's, I may be asking for something that's not possible, but I, I just, if I'm, if I'm looking at the future, that would be my future. It's like, let's find ways to make this more impactful by joining it together, not changing the value of each each of those groups, but recognizing their continuity and their kind of yeah their commitments. It's it's an amazing view to see. I didn't experience the seventies, but experiencing now, it does it does feel more fragmented, and that definitely serves certain yeah. <laughs> certain parts of society very well. That that some of these groups of or the that that this sort of work is is more fragmented, so that that would. That would be an incredible thing to to happen. I suppose if I'm just aware of, of time, and I could talk talk to you all all evening. But maybe if I I'll pose it as a, a final question and see where our conversation goes, what advice would you give your younger self? Maybe just before you were at architecture school, or while you were there, or just as you were leaving? Is there anything you wish that 
you'd known or that someone had said to you? Yeah, it's really, it's funny. My daughter plays a game quite often. She lives in Australia now and, and she's 30. And, and her, when they were in their 20s, they always played the game, which was what they'd really like to be doing. And they couldn't, obviously, you know, again, it's, it's about her generation and needing to earn a living. And that game was always about, you know, well, yes, what I'd really like to be is A. Or I'd like to be an architect, but I'd like to be this sort of architect. Or, you know, and, and, and I always remember her saying to me, what would, what would you like to do differently about your life, mum? And I'm like, oh, I think I'm doing the things I want to be doing. <laughs> and I felt really embarrassed. It was like, I'm not playing the game properly. I'm just like, oh, uh, I think I've managed to do mainly the things that I want. And in fact, my daughter now is very much doing the things that she wants. She's made that big shift. But I guess... The, the advice to my former self would just be, you know, it's all right not to be, quote, un, you know, it's all right not to fit into these kind of normative models and that you don't really need to waste a lot of energy worrying about that. And as a younger person, you do, don't you? You spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, whether you're wearing the right shoes or who's going to think what, what people are going to think of you in the playground. And, and, it, and you have other versions of that as you get older. And and I think, yeah, my advice would just be that don't don't waste your energy. Just don't waste your parts of your, you know, your life on that. Just don't just stop worrying about it and just be. I mean, that's God, that sounds very neoliberal too. be what you want to be. But just, yeah, just stop letting the the social policing, the everyday social policing and the unconscious biases that, that do, that happen all the time. I mean, they happen to me quite a lot still. But, you know, they obviously happen a lot more if you're a person of colour. They happen a lot more if you're gay or transgender. They happen a lot more if you're a person, you know, it just, there's all sorts of, if you're disabled. But even for me as a kind of middle class white woman, I think it's just like, just not going to waste that energy anymore let them go very very wise words well Joss thank you so much I feel that we've barely scratched the surface and I could talk to you all night but I'm sure you (laughs) you don't want me to do that to you thanks for listening to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W I hope you enjoyed the discussion this podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd Thomas of Newcastle University Please subscribe to stay updated.